What a fabulous morning already, huh? Wow. Just to gather with God's people, to hear His Word read, pray together, sing the glories of our Savior together. Wow. But almost let you go home now, but I worked hard this week and I need to share with you the fruit of my labors. You know, Carol and I have many ministry opportunities and privileges here among the body, not the least of which is our time spent working with our college and career-aged folks. We don't do it alone. We have some really fine folk that work with us. But we really, really enjoy just working with that age group. It's really a strategic time of life. and There's a lot of things happening. Opportunity to influence people for the gospel is really significant. One of the sort of um, benefits or side advantages of working in that age group is that a lot of weddings come out of that particular time in life. And uh, there's, there's nothing like the delight of having uh, a young lady come scurrying over to show us what now occupies, you know, her left hand, just kind of there. And, and uh, it's just delightful, you know. You see that beautiful diamond ring there, and it's just sparkling and, and dazzling, and it matches her eyes, which are sparkling and, and dazzling as well. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful time. It's really funny, too, because in the weeks that follow, you kind of on the corner of your eye, you catch a side glance and you'll see her there kind of, you know, checking it out. The sun's coming in through the window and she's kind of doing one of these numbers. And, you know, every direction she turns it, it's still beautiful. It's just just brilliant and dazzling. And it's just an exciting time. Well, I'm here this morning to talk to you about the gospel. I want to talk to you about the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is the good news of a death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is like a diamond in that it, it dazzles, it sparkles, it's brilliant no matter what direction you look at. You can turn it in any of a many, many different ways and the gospel just shines forth. And what I want to do this morning is ask you to open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And if you're using one of those pew Bibles, page 1152. And together, we are going to look at verses 3 through 8 of Paul's letter here to the church at Corinth. And as we do that, he's focusing on the gospel. And we're going to focus on the gospel too. And as we briefly examine the gospel that he has presented to us here, we'll see four facets, four facets of this gospel They're like a diamond. They're just blazing in their glory. Four facets of the gospel so that we might understand and believe its life-changing message. Let me read for you what the Apostle Paul has to say. Verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, 
most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul has given to us here a very simple recounting of the gospel. But like a diamond, it is brilliant in each of its facets. So let's look together in verse 3 at the first of these four facets that God has for us this morning. Number one, the priority of the gospel. That's the first facet. The priority of the gospel. Notice Paul says, verse 3, take a look. But I delivered to you as of first importance. Do you see that? Paul says, I delivered this to you as of first importance. Now, he is speaking of both time, but more significantly, priority. He is saying to this church located here in Corinth, in Greece, that when he came to them, he had only essentially one thing to say. He had one message to deliver. He had one story to tell. He had one important reality that they must understand and must believe. It is a priority message, a priority message that supersedes all other messages. We see that if you'll look back with me to chapter 2, this same letter, chapter 2. And just the first couple of verses there in chapter 2. Paul writes, chapter 2 of the same letter. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, When I came to you with a message to deliver to you, I didn't wrap it up in the cultural trappings that you would be used to receiving a message in. Corinth was a a community, was a seaport community that was very used to all kinds of messages coming east and west as the various trade ships would arrive. It was a city in which all kinds of religious ideas and notions flourished. It was a city in which wisdom was at a premium value, human wisdom. The idea of getting together and arguing and disputing and and rationalizing and using your logic and figuring it all out was at a very, very high premium among the residents of this city. And Paul said, when I came to you, I brought you a message, a, a message that was very, very simple and very straightforward. I came to you and I talked to you about only essentially one thing. I came and talked to you about God sending forth his son to take human flesh upon him, to live among mankind, to live perfectly before his father, and then to go sinlessly to a cross, to be crucified on a Roman cross, to be buried and on the third day to be raised from the dead, that in his name you might have eternal life. That's my message. And that's all I want to talk about. 
I'm not interested in talking about philosophy. I'm not interested in talking about politics. I'm not interested in talking about finance. I'm not interested in talking about the weather. I couldn't care which ball team won or lost. Paul is saying, I have nothing on my mind except a message, the priority of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what I came to tell you about. Well, why, Paul? Why, why are you so narrow-minded? Why are you so focused? Someone once said that the Apostle Paul was so narrow-minded he could see through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. I mean, he was really on a very straight and narrow course. Why? What drove this man? He was a, a man of great wisdom and learning. He had gone to all the best universities in the ancient world. What was it that drove him in this direction? And the answer to that question is he had been given a divine commission. He had been given a commission that was to send him and those that, that ministered with him out into the world to deliver this single life-changing message, this priority message. In Matthew chapter 28, you don't have to turn there, but just listen, verses 19 and 20, probably very familiar to you. Jesus gave what is known as the Great Commission to his disciples. These were his parting words before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And he said to them, go therefore and make disciples, that is, make learners of all the nations, that is, the entire world, all peoples of the world. Make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That was their marching orders to go into the world and to teach this message. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus, speaking again to them, says, You shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is their marching orders. They are to start at home in the capital city of Jerusalem and then in ever-widening circles, they are to take this priority message everywhere from one end of this globe to the other. In fact, Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is a priority message. There is no other message that matches this message. Therefore, it must be taken everywhere. More than a decade ago, we had the great Northridge earthquake. Do you remember that? How many of you remember the Northridge quake? How many of you remember what you were doing when the Northridge quake hit? I was sleeping. Woke me up. Took my swimming pool, by the way, and it started to go like this. Looked like somebody had taken a, an aquarium and started tipping it end to end, and the waves were just going back and forth in my swimming pool. I have one-foot swells in my swimming pool. That was a serious earthquake. You'll remember that one of the results of that earthquake was that a section of a highway overpass collapsed. Do you remember that? Actually, there was a, I believe it was a highway patrol officer who plunged to his death in the wee hours of the morning off of that uh, failed section of road. Well, let me ask you a question. Suppose that you were out driving in the wee hours of the morning that day of the Northridge quake. 
Now, let's just suppose in the providence of God that, uh, that you came to, to, to know that the freeway had collapsed without you finding it out firsthand. What would you do? What would you do with that information? Would you just kind of back up, get on another side exit, you know, work, work your way around? I got to get to work. That's their problem. You know, I, I found it out. And just leave it. Is that what you'd do? I don't think so. I don't think that's what you'd do at all. In fact, what I think you would do is I think that you would seek to create the greatest traffic jam that Southern California has ever seen. I think that you would do everything you could to close down that freeway, to shut down that freeway, to, to inconvenience people, to bother people, to clog people up, to make them all late to work so that not a single car could get through that multi-lane freeway. I think that's what you would do. Why? What about, what about all the people that you're going to inconvenience? What about, what about all the people that are going to be late to work? And their, and their boss is going to say, how come you late to work? Well, there was a big traffic jam on the freeway. What about, what about those people that are, that are, you know, a few cars back in the line and they don't really understand why the traffic is all jammed up? And so they're just getting madder at you and madder at you. You know, would that bother you? Would you take all of that into consideration? Would you, would you not do this because so many people would be upset with you because you created an intentional traffic jam? Of course not. Of course not. Why? Because it's so important what you're doing. It is so significant. You must jam up this freeway. Otherwise, these cars will plunge to certain destruction. Isn't that true? Well, my friends... It's the same with the gospel. It's the same with the gospel. People are are speeding down the highway of life and they are headed toward certain destruction. The Bible is very, very clear. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once. And after this comes judgment. People are on a highway to hell. And it is, a, it is a priority that they be told whether they want to hear the message or not, whether it inconveniences them or not, whether it irritates them, aggravates them, upsets their day, creates emotional or anxiety, stress in their lives. It doesn't matter. They have to be told because they're going to die. They're going to die. This is why Christians can't just sit down and shut up. This is why it's really, you know, if you're having a dinner party and you invite Christians, they always mess up the dinner party. It's just a, it's supposed to be a nice family holiday dinner, right? It's all been laid out and we're going to sit down and we're just going to talk about sort of innocuous things. And then there's the Christian and they insist on talking about this Jesus Christ and how he died and was buried and he rose again. And by faith in his name and in his name only, can you be justified before your creator? And it's just bad manners. It's nothing but bad manners. It creates anxiety in people's hearts. It makes them angry. They want to shut you up. They want to shut you out. But you still keep on talking. Why? Why do we talk? In fact, in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the, the disciples had, had become so outrageous in their, in their insistence upon the priority of this message that they said about them that these men have upset the whole world. Everywhere they go, they do nothing but cause trouble. They're troublemakers. 
because they insist upon this message, the priority of this message. Think of it this way. If you discovered a cure for cancer, what would you do with it? If, if you were to discover the cure for cancer, would you keep it to yourself? Would you just tell it to a few close friends? Or would you make it as widely known as possible? I think you'd make it known. I think you'd make it known because it is a priority message that people need to hear. They need to hear. And that's exactly what the good news of the gospel is. It is a priority message that people need to hear. Secondly, second facet of the gospel. It is a transcendent message. It is a transcendent message. Now, the word transcendent, that's a nice big word. And what it means is otherworldly. That means that it's, it's not from our world. It didn't originate in our world. It originated outside of our world and was thrust into our world. It entered into our world. It didn't originate within our world. What Paul says to them here, again, back, look at, at um, verse 3. I delivered to you as of, what it, uh, as of first importance, here it is, what I also received. You see that statement? What I also received. That is, Paul didn't make this up. It came to him. He received this message. It came from outside to him. And Paul was reminding the the believers here in Corinth of an important reality. And that is that the good news of Jesus Christ is not a message of human invention. It's not something that is the product of human religious aspirations. It is something that is divinely revealed to humanity to address the human predicament. It comes in from outside. Why? The answer is, is because all people, no matter whether they are well-educated and wealthy and socially refined or whether they are ignorant, poor and crude, they have the same pressing problem. And the problem is sin. The problem is sin. They and we and I are continually in violation of our Creator's holy standards. He holds our breath in His hand, as it were. We are entirely dependent upon Him for the very next breath of life, and yet we act in complete defiance to Him. We have broken His law in our deeds, in our words, and in our thoughts. And we are continually insisting that we can live our life independent of him. That we do not need to submit to him. That we do not need to love him. In fact, we even go so far as to create little gods of our own making. Little false gods. Little idols of our own making. They are the product of our own vain imaginings. Sometimes they are sophisticated. Sometimes they are very crude. Sometimes they are, they are physical, and sometimes they are merely intellectual or philosophical. But whether they are intellectual and philosophical, or whether they are, they are uh, physical and crude, the fact remains the same, that humanity is in rebellion against his creator, their creator, and they are making false gods, idols all the time. Our heart and our mind is an idol factory. It is turning them out. And the Bible calls this sin. The Bible calls it sin. And sin alienates us from our creator. 
Now think with me on this. Did you know there are only two religions in the whole world? Did you know that? There are, there are merely two religions. There are all the variations of the religion of self-effort. This is the religion in which man seeks to reach up to God as they think they understand him and indeed how they have created him in their mind. Man reaching up to God. That is, that is all one set of religions. And then there is a single religion, which is biblical Christianity, in which God reaches down to man. Everything can be put in one of two categories. It is either God reaching down to us, which is biblical Christianity, or it is us in some form, fashion, reaching up to God. And that is all other religions of the world. Some are very primitive. Some are very complex. But they fall into one of two categories. And, they, and all of those that are man reaching out to God are essentially the same because what they believe is that there is a, some spark of goodness in the human heart. There is some spark of goodness there in the human heart. And by self-effort, that spark can be fanned into flame. It can be, it can be brought into a raging fire in which that person will now be right and acceptable before their creator. The problem with that is that it runs directly into the wall of biblical truth. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, speaking of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The heart is a liar. Your heart will lie to you this morning. If you do not know Jesus Christ, your heart is lying to you right now by telling you you do not need him. That your self-effort is good enough. That your homemade religion will be sufficient enough. That in the final judgment, God will take that in payment for your soul. You are lying to yourself. The heart is deceiving you. Paul makes this statement about humanity. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Paul's assessment of humanity, again, drawn from the Old Testament, but he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not even one. All stand condemned before the divine bar of justice. Why? Jesus gave us the answer. Why? In Matthew chapter 7, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and following, where he writes, Far from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You understand the significance of that? What Jesus is saying is that our problem is not out there. Our problem is not a matter of our upbringing. Our problem is not a matter of our educational system. Our problem is not a matter of our access to wealth or lack thereof. Our problem is not a matter of what someone has done to us or not done for us as we have been growing up. 
Our problem has nothing to do with our IQ. It has nothing to do with our our social status. It has nothing to do with the way we were raised. Our problem lies way deeper than all of that. It is at the very depth of our soul. Sin bubbles out of the heart. My friend, we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. And we have such a fundamental problem that it requires a transcendent solution coming from outside of the human predicament. Yesterday, I was at a certain place where they had a beautiful aquarium, just a gorgeous aquarium. And and I had a couple of minutes to stand there and, and to look at it. And there were all these gorgeous colored fish swimming around in the aquarium. You know, when you look at, at fish swimming around, there's an observation you can make. The observation I make when I see fish swimming around is that they're all wet. Do you ever think about that? They are entirely wet. And here's a secondary observation you can make. They don't know it. Do you ever think about that? Fish are entirely submerged in water. They are entirely wet and they do not know it. It requires somebody outside of the system to look in and to observe their predicament. But it's the same way with the human condition. We are absolutely saturated in sin. We are submerged in sin. And the the desperate reality of this is we don't know how sinful we really are. We are like that fish in water. We have no idea that we are all wet. That means the solution to our problem has to come from outside the system. It cannot be developed internally. It cannot be something that we work up on our own. It must come to us from God. God must intrude into the human condition in order to save his creation. And he did first, he did this first through the through the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. He intruded into the human situation through the words of the Old Testament prophets, the scriptures, when he spoke of a coming deliverer, a coming one. And then in the fullness of time, at the right moment, God stepped into time. He sent his only begotten son into space and time to take to himself human flesh, to be born of a woman, to live righteously before the law of God, and then to willingly offer himself as a sacrifice. Perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the entire New Testament, probably in the entire Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but what? Tell me, but what? Have everlasting life. God stepped in to rescue and deliver. Jesus said it himself, John 10 and verse 10, I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly, abundantly. Listen to me. There was no human present when God called this universe into existence. And there has been no human who has entered into the throne room of God. We know neither the beginning nor the end. We are like the blind groping in a dark room that has neither windows nor doors. And we are scratching at the walls trying to figure out 
Where are we and what do we do? And our only chance, our only hope of rescue is for God himself to rip the cover off the box and to enter in space and time and to deliver us from our bondage to sin. That deliverer is the God-man, Jesus Christ. That takes us to our third facet of the diamond this morning. The third facet of the diamond is the content of the gospel. The third facet is the content. We see it here in the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, many, many scholars and commentators believe that what Paul has recorded here is a very early and very simple, what's called a catechism, a catechism. It was a teaching device. It was a small series of statements that were easily memorized and they would be used with parents, with their children to instruct them in the Christian faith. Or they would be used with new converts to memorize in order that they might have a rudimentary, basic understanding of the Christian gospel. And so Paul narrows down the the pages of Scripture into these few very small and very powerful statements of the Christian gospel. And they are threefold here for us this morning. The first of the three statements is at the end of verse 3. Christ died for our sins. Do you see it? Christ died for our sins. Now, you may or may not be aware of this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. You have a last name. I have a last name. Christ is not his last name. It is a title. It is a title. And it means Messiah. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. It means king of Israel. It means deliverer. All of these meanings are there in this word Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the king of Israel. Jesus the deliverer of his people. And Paul says here in the end of verse 3 that the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the King, the Anointed One died for our sins. Do you see that? He died for our sins. Now notice that teeny little preposition, for. Do you see it? For. Just a dinky little word, right? Just three letters in English. little teeny preposition, for. He died for our sins. What does that mean? What does the for mean? What does the preposition communicate? Well, in in the language of the Bible, to die for the sins of someone else is to die in the place of someone else. It is to die on behalf of someone else. It is the innocent to die on behalf of or in the place of the guilty. Jesus died for. For our sins. It is the language of sacrifice. It is the language of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Now we are a long way removed from the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Isn't that true? I didn't see a single person come in this morning with a lamb on their shoulders. None of you. You didn't even think about the requirement to do that, did you? Because we are a long way removed from that 
reality. But that is very much the reality into which Paul was communicating this letter is that the entire Jewish Old Testament, Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to a coming reality. That is that the innocent must die on behalf of the guilty. A spotless lamb must shed its blood in behalf of his people. We see it most clearly in what is known as the Passover. The Passover. You perhaps remember this. Is where the lamb was slaughtered and they took some of its blood. It was spread on the doorpost and the lentil of the house so that the death angel and the plagues upon Israel passed over the house and did not kill the firstborn among the children of Israel. The Passover. The death of that innocent animal in behalf of the guilty who lay within the house. John's Gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist looks to Jesus, points at him, and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, under that Old Testament ritual, that Old Testament sacrificial system, the death of a lamb could never permanently make a person right with God. Never. It was a requirement that it be repeated Year after year after year after year, how many lambs must die? Because an animal can never stand in for a human being. There is no moral equivalence. Never could a lamb take your place. Never could an innocent lamb be the covering for the sin of your soul. It was merely a temporary covering. It was merely a delay until God, in the fullness of time, sent forth His own Son, the very Lamb of God Himself, to come in and to die on behalf of me and you. It was the once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. Notice also that it is according to the Scriptures. Do you see that? Verse 3. It was according to the Scriptures. Jesus the Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That is that the very Word of God had predicted this reality from the beginning of time. There in the garden, when Adam fell and became separated from God in his sin, God spoke a prophecy that would someday be fulfilled. Speaking actually to Satan at the time, he promised Satan's eventual destruction through a coming deliverer. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There is a deliverer coming, Adam, who will someday crush the serpent's head. 750 years before that coming one was born, the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah looked forward in time and saw the coming one and described his sacrifice as follows. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 4, he said, Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins according 
to the ancient scriptures. Secondly, he was buried. The beginning of verse 4. Take a look. He was buried. The four gospels are unanimous in their account that Jesus was buried after his crucifixion. That he died on that cross and was buried. In fact, it is his burying that certifies his death. It is the fact that he was buried that proves he was dead and he was necessary to be buried and to be dead in order that he might rise again. So it was significant for these early Christians to remember and understand that Jesus Christ was buried. He was dead. Turn back to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Page 1016, if you're using a pew Bible. Mark 15 and verse 43. Mark chapter 15 and verse 43. Mark records for us, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were there looking on to see where he was laid. Pilate can't believe that Jesus is dead. It's been only six hours since he was nailed to that cross. It was common for victims to suffer up to two to three days unless their legs have been shattered. And Jesus is dead. So Pilate calls the centurion, the one who was in charge of the crucifixion, a hard man of war, a man who had seen death up close and personal on many occasions. And he calls him in and he he questions him closely. And he says, is it true? Is he really dead? And the centurion said, yes, he is dead. In fact, John, we're not told here in Mark, but John tells us that a Roman spear was thrust into his side to prove that he was dead. And Pilate grants the body and he is buried. My friends... Jesus did not faint on that cross. It was not a loss of blood that caused Jesus to faint or to swoon. It's not that he just temporarily lost consciousness and therefore they erroneously concluded he was dead and laid him in a tomb. And then later in the coolness of the tomb, he revived and and he managed to roll the rock away and get out. Such foolishness. He was dead. 
He had voluntarily surrendered his life in order to fully absorb the wrath of God against the sin of his people. And because he was dead, he was buried. He was buried. And that takes us to the third truth that Paul would have us remember. Back in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4. He was raised on the third day. Do you see it? He was raised on the third day. Now, the first two points of this early creed, the fact that Jesus died and was buried, are communicated using a very simple past tense verb in the Greek. Here, the writer communicates to us with a different Greek verb. He uses a perfect tense Greek verb. And you are probably thinking to yourself, so what? Why do I care whether it's a simple past tense or a perfect tense Greek verb? What difference does it make? I could care less. I hated grammar in high school, and I still hate it. And so do I. Well, not really. But when you leave here in another few minutes, you are going to know the difference between the simple past tense and the perfect And in this case, it is going to make all the difference in the world to you. Because it's communicated here. Paul communicates to us, the end of verse 4, in the perfect tense verb, he was raised on the third day. The perfect tense verb is an action in the past with an ongoing reality. An action in the past with an ongoing reality. What that means is Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, and my friends, he is still alive. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ is the living Lord. This is a historical reality to millennia ago, but he remains the living Lord to this day. And he will be the living Lord forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. He rose from the dead, and he is still alive, even now. He rose from the dead, and by his resurrection, we have God the Father's stamp of approval upon his atoning sacrifice. We now understand that God accepted that payment in full for the sin of his people. We know that Jesus did not die for his own sin because otherwise he would have remained dead. But the very fact that he is alive is the proof positive that the sinless one died on behalf of someone else. The scriptures say it this way in Acts chapter 13 and verse 35. God will not allow his holy one to undergo decay. God would not allow him to remain in the grave. And so God rolled away the stone that you and I might look in and know that Jesus Christ is alive even this day. And by his resurrection life, he is the fountainhead of a new humanity. He is, as it were, the second Adam. There is a new race of men that come through faith in Christ. And through him, this new race of men will now never taste the final judgment for sin and death. 
It has been broken in Christ. Sin's chains have been broken. The penalty of death and separation from the Father was endured on the cross by Christ when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now he is the living one, and he gives to those who are his by faith the right to eternal life. He is the living one. And that takes us to the fourth facet of the gospel. The fourth brilliant display of truth that Paul records for us here. And I called it the veracity of the gospel. The veracity of the gospel. I like the word veracity. It means truthfulness. Truthfulness. The truthfulness of the gospel. Now, it is a legitimate question to ask, how do I know the gospel is true? Maybe, you, maybe you're asking that question of yourself right now. You're saying, preacher, I'm listening to you, but how do I know it's true? You are telling me to give up on my own self-effort. You are telling me that all of my righteous deeds will not matter at all in the final judgment. That God will actually be offended that you would even attempt to offer them to assuage his wrath. And instead, you're asking me to bet it all on a man you say rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. How do I know it's true? How do I know it is true? It's a good question. It's a significant question. It's a question that should not be brushed aside simply. And Paul here, in very abbreviated form, provides a couple of lines of evidence that we might know that it is true. First is the Scriptures themselves. It is the little expression, according to the Scriptures. Do you see it at the end of verse 3? He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was raised the third day, the end of verse 4, according to the Scriptures. Paul brings to bear the very Word of God. And he says, this is your first line of evidence that you will know that these things are true. That they, that they occurred in fulfillment of the scriptures of God. The ancient prophecies of God, given more than a thousand years before the events of this time, in minute detail, have come to pass. No human book, no human scheme could possibly Consider all of the contingencies necessary to bring together the events of this day and have them perfectly fulfilled down to the most minute detail. It was a thousand years before the events of this day when the prophet David wrote these words in Psalm 22 and verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's exactly what those Roman soldiers did there at the foot of the cross. No human book could possibly predict such things. Furthermore, only a sovereign God could possibly bring all the pieces of the puzzle together at exactly the right moment. All of the various personages, and they're all competing uh, uh, interests and, and, and things that were driving them, and God brought every single one of them together that at the exact moment in time, Christ died and then rose again. My friend... It is the Scriptures and the fulfillment of the Scriptures, the hundreds and hundreds of detailed prophecies located in the Word of God that speak of the Christ 
that provide us with a sure foundation, a sure foundation for our saving faith. But it goes beyond that. Paul gives us a second line of evidence, and that is eyewitness testimony, beginning in verse 5. Eyewitness testimony. He appeared to Cephas, he says. Cephas is an Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Think with me. The night in which Jesus was arrested, the day in which he was crucified, they came to the garden to arrest him. And his disciples fled. They turned their back on him. Strike the shepherd that the sheep might be scattered. And they ran and they turned and they denied him. And then when the Romans took him to that tree and nailed him to die there, they disappeared. They wanted nothing to do with this man. The gospel writers tell us they could be found that Sunday evening huddled in a small upper room with doors locked for fear of the Jews. They were afraid that in the sweep and in the dragnet to, to, to collect up his band of followers, that they would get caught up themselves off to imprisonment or worse, their own crucifixion. And so they were hiding, afraid, scared. And then Christ appeared to them. He appeared to them that night. He said, look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. I am the living one. And I commission you to go out and to preach the message of redemption in my name. And that little huddled group of men were transformed. They became bold proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They became irrepressible evangelists. They died, every single one of them, committed to preaching the message of resurrection of Jesus Christ from one end of the world to the other. They were absolutely transformed and they turned the world upside down. But maybe it was a mass hallucination. I mean, after all, they were, they were highly unnerved by the events of those two days. Their, their hearts and minds were unsettled. And so, so maybe they saw some sort of hallucination and, and then they came under a mass delusion and, and somehow they foolishly gave their lives for a lie. But Paul says, listen to me. Verse 6. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That's more than all of us here right now. At one time. Paul's writing this letter about two decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. About 20 years ago, he said, he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them. Let them tell you what they saw, what they heard. He appeared to James, verse 7, half-brother of Jesus, who was steeped in unbelief. Until Jesus appeared to him in his resurrection body. Finally, Paul says, listen, he appeared to me. He 
appeared to me. I saw him. And he commissioned me to bring this message to the known world. My friends, the evidence of the eyewitnesses is astounding. Jesus is alive. And he is alive to this day. He is the living Lord. He has conquered sin. There is life in his name and in his name alone. Can't help but think of what was read earlier in the service. Thomas, John chapter 20 says, I'm not going to believe unless I stick my finger into the place of the nails. Unless I put my hand into the spear wound of his side. Jesus appeared to Thomas eight days later, it says. And he said to him, Thomas, reach here your finger. See my hands. Reach here your hand. Put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, Thomas, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. My friends, this is us. Blessed are we who have not seen but believe. We believe upon the evidence of those who have seen. They have recorded it for us in the word of God. They have told us what they have seen. God now calls upon us to believe. I challenge you here this morning. You're here without Christ. That this gospel message is something that perhaps you will give intellectual assent to at some level, but you will not embrace it. You still hold it stiff-armed away. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Humble your heart before your creator. Call out to him to be merciful to you, to place the weight of your sin upon the crucified one, that his resurrection life might be yours by faith. These things have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I call on you now to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we gather here together this morning because we believe. Because you have worked the miracle of the new birth in our hearts. You have removed the scales from our eyes. You have unstopped our deaf ears. You have removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. We are here not because of any goodness in us. Not because of any merit in us, real or foreseen. We are here because in your mercy and grace you have reached out to us. And your son, Jesus Christ, has hung as a substitute in our place. And yet, O oh Father, not all can make that claim today. Not all can say that truthfully today. 
May you, even now, in this moment, pour forth of your Holy Spirit, grant grace and mercy to dead hearts, that they might believe and that they might know that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing they might have life in his name. Oh, we celebrate Easter, our Father, for it is the great and dramatic miracle of the resurrection of Christ. It is the exclamation point on the life of Christ. It is the foundation of our faith, and it is the certainty of his future return when he will come to establish his kingdom here on earth. Oh, Lord, strengthen our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.